Blog Talk Radio. And good morning out there. This is uh, Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. And uh, I'm uh, very happy to uh, welcome back one of my all-time favorites, uh, and that's Brooklyn Dodgers pitcher, Mr. Uh, Carl Erskine. Carl, welcome. First time in 2017. Sam, good morning. Yeah, well, I'm coming from Indiana, as usual, my home state, my hometown of Anderson, and uh, always a pleasure to speak with you and reminisce. Exactly. You're you're classically in Anderson, and I'm classically in Flatbush. It just worked out that way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, well, two of my two of my hometowns. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, well, we're we're going to specialize on this uh, this podcast, everybody, uh, talking uh, about Walter O'Malley. Obviously, Brooklyn has a pretty one-sided view about Walter, and uh, you know it, it is understandable. He did take the, uh, the Dodgers out of Brooklyn, but. I wanted to get Carl here uh, because Carl has uh, talked glowingly at many times about Walter on the podcast, and I wanted to to uh, uh, hone in specifically on uh, the Walter O'Malley uh, angle of uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers war. So, Carl, I, I, the first thing I'd like to ask you about Walter is uh, if, if you remember the first time you were made aware of Walter, the first time you met him, uh, go 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 back to to uh, kind of the, the first moment that uh, you became aware of Walter O'Malley. Well, Mr. Rickey had signed me, Branch Rickey had signed me in 1946, and uh, I'd just gotten out of the Navy, and uh, I went to the minor leagues, and then I was called up in 48. I had a very short minor league experience, and uh, – they were rebuilding the team at that time. Mr. Rickey was, of course, the general manager and uh, part owner. On the board was Walter O'Malley, who I didn't know or even know about at that time. <clears throat> but then by the time Mr. Rickey uh, had, um, I guess, decided his stay in Brooklyn was complete, Jackie Robinson had come on in 47, had gone through that experience of uh, – being the first black player, Mr. Rickey had wanted that to happen. <clears throat> he got that done. And then uh, uh, he sold his stock to Walter O'Malley, who was a board member of the Dodgers and a New York attorney. But he'd been on the board of the Dodgers, and, he, of course, he knew the operation very well. And he voted the, the shares of uh, a, a Smith family. And when he could acquire Mr. Rickey's stock, then he had controlling interest of the Dodgers by stock ownership and the voting rights of the Smith family. So there became a better, bitter departure between O'Malley and Mr. Rickey, and maybe we'll get into that a little later. But I didn't understand. I didn't know Mr. O'Malley until about 1950. I'd been in the league a couple of years. And in 1950, Mr. Rickey sold out uh, to uh, Walter O'Malley, and he went to Pittsburgh to try to rebuild their organization. And then I became aware of Mr. O'Malley. Also, it's about the same time I became player representative for the Dodgers. As, uh, and in those days, the players are not organized yet. So it wasn't a union status, but it was a – representative status the owners recognized the players to have a voice and it was a voice without any real authority or much of a hammer but 
it was a cordial kind of an arrangement the years before uh, Marvin Miller came along and, and organized the players. Uh, but that in that era, 1950-51 and then beyond that, uh, I knew and got well acquainted with Mr. O'Malley. Well, going back to uh, the bitter departure, what do you remember about uh, Grant Tricky's departure in context of Walter O'Malley? Well, number one, Mr. Ricky was an outstanding person morally, uh, spiritually, uh, and he was a brilliant thinker. And, of course, his, for, his forte was baseball. Uh, and so he was – he had this unreal – Kind of skill to read the uh, read the player that he was wanting to sign, and he used to do a lot of one-on-one uh, interviews or sessions with with his players, and uh, so he was a baseball guy. Uh, Walter Malley was a an astute businessman, but did not necessarily have the real feel or the touch or the experience in the personnel of the players. He didn't know that. But anyway, uh, I sort of lost my thought of your question there, Sam. But, but anyway, no that well, Mr. Ricky was the baseball uh, genius, and Walter O'Malley was, in a sense, the business genius. And together, they were a great team. But <clears throat> when Mr. O'Malley... Uh, was negotiating with Branch Rickey, a shrewd dealer, um, fair but shrewd. Um, he and Mr. Rickey got a kind of a standoff, and the, the Dodger contract with Mr. Rickey stated that if he'd ever sell his stock, he had to offer it first back to the board of directors of the Dodgers. They got first call on a sale. But there was also a provision that said, if this is the way I understand it, that if the seller, Mr. Ricky, uh, had a better bid, a genuine better bid than was offered by the board of directors at Dodgers, that the board of directors had to meet it or he could sell to the highest bidder. Well, when Mr. O'Malley and Walter, I mean, and um, Mr. Ricky couldn't come to an agreement, they kind of got stymied. Mr. Ricky had a price, Walter O'Malley had a price, and uh, they were not close. Yes. But Mr. Ricky, shrewd as he was, uh, found a buyer, as I remember, a, a realtor, a little famous realtor in New York, Zeckendorf. Mm-hmm. Uh, stepped up and said, I'll pay Ricky's price. And that put Walter in, in a tough position to either pay it or or let uh, an outsider buy into the Dodgers. <clears throat> so Mr. Uh, O'Malley agreed to sell it to, uh, to Mr. Ricky at Mr. Ricky's price. And there was a, a kind of a bitter departure because of that. There was there was a finder's fee involved and a lot of other stuff. But anyway, they parted a pretty bitter, at least on the part of Mr. O'Malley. He was, he was kind of snookered, he felt like. And, uh, and Mr. Reggie didn't do anything illegal or immoral or unethical. He just, 
he just took advantage was shrewd in, in making the deal but that carried over a little bit with uh or we all thought it did <clears throat> that mr o'malley now is running the organization that mr ricky built so all the people down through the whole system uh the front office the scouts the coaches the managers <laughs> were all ricky people and so you can understand Mr. O'Malley, surrounded by all these strong supporters of Mr. Ricky, began to kind of dismantle his his organization. But he was smart. Uh, Mr. O'Malley was a, a shrewd man himself, uh, smart in business. He didn't get rid of the key people who knew the baseball side of the picture. And one of those was Buzzy Bavese. Mm-hmm. Uh, Buzzy was a was a shrewd uh, general manager. He'd been raised in the Dodger system, but he knew the personnel right down through the 26 farm teams. Uh, Peter and so uh, uh, Bavese was was retained. Uh, many of the other people, uh, one way or another, were let go or left on their own or whatever. But uh, I always thought that was shrewd of Mr. Uh, O'Malley, he, Bavese was a Ricky disciple, no question. But mm-hmm. he had all the smarts about the the player side of the organization, and uh, so he he kept him. And so for the years that I played was from '48 to 1960. Uh, Buzzy Bavese was our general manager, and we negotiated with him. Instead of uh, as we used to negotiate with Mr. Ricky, and we didn't have agents in those days, so right. it was a one-sided deal to, to go in and <laughs> negotiate because we were very young guys, and the reserve clause in our contracts in those days said that we we're bound to the same team forever. There was no free agency, so you really went in and negotiate basically on what you're willing to play for the next year because you couldn't play for anybody else. But Buzzy was the guy that then began to deal directly with the players, only at the direction of Walter O'Malley. He'd give Buzzy a, a budget to sign the players, and Buzzy had to try to sign the whole team within that budget. And uh, and Mr. Ricky, uh, Mr. Uh, O'Malley was a tough uh, tough negotiator himself. So, But as player representative, I was – a little more privy to be in his office discussing some small thing or minor thing. And then Mr. Ricky, excuse me, Mr. O'Malley uh, would bring me in the office once in a while and just give me some information about the, uh, something that he felt like was appropriate for the players to know. And uh, I remember being in his office and he showed me, this would probably be by the mid-50s, he showed me an architect's uh, model of a dome stadium. And he said, Carl, someday we're going to be playing baseball in a controlled environment. There won't be any rainouts, and the fans will be comfortable. And, and he was futuristic. He thought ahead. He was, he, But some architect that he knew had actually put together a model of a, of a, of a, of a dome stadium. And... Um, Eventually, it was built. The first one was built in Houston, uh, but not till in the 60s. But I'm just giving you that as a the mindset of 
Mr. O'Malley was very futuristic, and uh, he thought ahead. I think it's a bit of irony that he wanted to move the Dodgers to a spot downtown Brooklyn, and that's mm-hmm. where the Long Island Railroad uh, uh, came through, and uh, he couldn't get it done. Uh, City Fathers and Robert Moses in the mayor's office uh control too much of the expansion of the city and the highway systems and everything. He wouldn't, he wouldn't ever hear to it. And the irony is, uh, I just watched a basketball game this week when the Indiana Pacers played in the uh, brand, almost brand new facility where the uh, Nets play, the, the mm-hmm. Brooklyn. And that's exactly the site Mr. O'Malley wanted in the 1950s to keep the Dodgers in Brooklyn and they wouldn't let him do it. And 60 years later, <laughs> the same site is, is the site of, uh, of a major uh, sports arena in Brooklyn. So I think that's uh, very ironic. I haven't gotten a chance to, to go to it yet, which uh, I really do need to make a point to uh, one way or the other, whether it's a concert, a hockey game or a basketball game. Um, Although I think it sounds like the hockey might be moving on at some point in the near future, but you know, speaking of the site, obviously he he was um, a hard negotiator with uh, uh, Robert Moses uh, and trying to get the spot out of eminent domain. Now, you know, what I've heard is that he could have potentially purchased or at least attempted to purchase the the site uh, on his own accord, but of course he wanted eminent domain, which would have given him the, the land uh, free of charge. So I know that you had some, some business background after your, your baseball playing days. So, uh, you know, w- when it comes to, to that angle, uh, how do you see it? What, what is your perspective of why Walter didn't go after the site on his own accord? Well, my understanding is, and now you realize, the players were out of the loop on this. We were only – advised uh, through the same resource you would have been or any other citizen. We we read it in the newspaper. We heard the rumors. But we were not brought into the picture as it was being negotiated. So we didn't really know except Mr. Omai was trying to get us to a new, a new site and build a park and that he had offered to build it with his own money. He wasn't going to ask the city of uh, – for bonds or anything from the, uh, from Brooklyn. Uh, now, as far as purchasing the land, uh, I'm not privy to how that uh, would have been worked out. Eminent domain would have meant that the city had uh, been able to, for the as the wording goes, I think benefit of the broader community, uh, declared that eminent domain let him uh, claim that land. But how that was purchased. Uh, normally it would be appraised value, but um, I'm not privy to that part of it. But I know Mr. O'Malley did not, as many, many uh, owners have done in more recent years, uh, ask the municipality to provide the funding for building uh, some arena or some stadium. Now, I don't know how the the one in Brooklyn now that uh, has been recently built on that same lands, I don't know how that was financed, but uh, I know O'Malley, who himself was very successful as an attorney, uh, did offer to build the new stadium uh, in Brooklyn with his own funds. 
But as far as acquiring the ground, I, that's a part I don't, I'm not up to, up to speed on. I would assume that him saying, I'll, I'm going to pay for it myself, meant that he was going to buy the ground as well as build a stadium. But that was just out of our loop, and, and we didn't we, – we were as anxious to know what he was going to do as the fans were. But we were too busy with our own careers. Uh, people often ask me, you played in Brooklyn 10 years. Why Why didn't you buy a house there? We were on one-year contracts. <laughs> yeah, was, right, exactly. It was, not, it was not a good thing to have a 30-year mortgage on a one-year contract. So um, we we never thought about uh, – actually, well, Gil Hodges married a girl from Brooklyn, <laughs> and he did stay. But the rest of us would go back to our hometowns at the end of the baseball season. And that's the reason we – we weren't sure if we'd be back there the next year. Right, exactly. So, uh, so we were all focused. We were very much focused on our own careers. And even with the Jackie Robinson experience uh, and what Jackie went through and how historic it was, we we were more focused on can we stay another year? Can we get another contract? And uh, so that was that was the culture of the baseball team at that time. So, so from that perspective, uh, to to digress a second, uh, you you had a, a, you rented the house in in Bay Ridge. Oh yeah, yes we did. We'd have to. It was always a tr- uh, very difficult. This was true in the minor leagues or major leagues. When you come into the city, uh, let's say you're new, like I was in '48, uh, it was up to you uh, to find a place to bring your family. And so uh, we we lived our first year in Brooklyn. Betty and I were uh, just young, married. We had one small child, uh, probably six, seven months old. And uh, and we can, I don't know how, asking around, I ended up renting a basement apartment for a, a family named Pepperman. And they were a very fine uh, couple. That, and it was a basement apartment in Brooklyn. And and I could never find my way home. I would get lost every time I try to find a way home. And uh, Brooklyn Union Gas Company had a great big sign uh, lighted at night. And I used to look for that and find my way back to where I live. But, but it was kind of a very humble beginning. But we were so thrilled to be in New York and Brooklyn. And uh, But we always had to find a place. Now, once you got established, and you kind of knew your way around, then we ended up uh, leasing from a a lady in Brooklyn on uh, a Lafayette Walk in uh, near Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn. Um, And she was so cordial about it that we could go back there every year for several years, uh, Mrs. Coughlin, and she would go away and visit her sister up in Saratoga, and then she'd come back whenever we were ready to leave. But it was difficult if you had a lease to September, and then you got in the World Series. If you, and we were in five World Series while I was there in, in my 10 seasons in Brooklyn, in five World Series. Well, if your lease ran out, you you had to move out of your apartment or house, whatever, and go to a motel or something. But with Mrs. Coughlin and with Pee Wee, who lived nearby, and Duke Snyder lived close by in Bay Ridge, and, and Ruth Walker and Preacher Row, uh, those people, we all got uh, worked out. So if we got in the World Series, uh, they'd extend our lease for us so we could uh, 
stay in the same place till the series was over. But that was a part behind the scenes with guys and their families and young kids growing up. School was another issue. Uh, do you put your kids in school in Brooklyn or uh, leave your family home and their hometowns? So those were all behind the scenes uh, stresses that the players went through. And and the other thing that tax situation in those years, you couldn't deduct the expense of the house you're leased or rented uh, or any expense to be on your job. Uh, that was not privileged in those days. So I know now the laws have changed and, and that's a legitimate expense, but uh, as little as we made, we still, we still didn't get any tax break on, on uh, our expenses when we had to live away from our uh, domicile or our regular home. But that, when, was, that was a different era. Right, exactly. Uh, when when uh, was the first time you became aware that there was the possibility the Dodgers could move out of Brooklyn? I think I think it must have started in the mid fifties, maybe a year, a couple of years ahead of the actual move. Uh, it took O'Malley a long time to keep this negotiation alive and try to. Uh, you may remember Sam, unless you're too young to remember, but you would probably research and know that the Dodgers. Actually played, I think we played ten or twelve games in Jersey City, right. in Roosevelt Stadium. Uh, that was probably in '56 or '7, and I think that was kind of a ploy by Mr. O'Malley to say, "Look, you guys won't let me uh, have my place in Brooklyn, uh, and we'll go over here." Uh, the city fathers, Moses particularly, wanted O'Malley to go uh, to Long Island to. Uh, uh, where the well, actually, where the Mets play now, that's where uh, they wanted the stadium to be built. And O'Malley says, "Look, that's 30 miles from Brooklyn. If I have to move 30 miles from Brooklyn, I might as well wait, uh, move 3,000 miles to LA." <laughs> what, was so, your, what, was, what was your opinion when, when you heard uh, that the Dodgers could potentially move to Brooklyn? What was your reaction? To, I mean, move from Brooklyn, excuse me. What was your reaction to that? Well. I think the players were a little bit, uh, a little bit surprised and kind of shocked. Here's the thing: uh, nobody realized this, but the Dodgers were the first team to fly, and we flew a little DC three that was acquired actually in a crap game. <laughs> I, uh, well, it's a true story that uh, the board was going to buy a plane early in the early fifties. Uh, so Mr. Ricky, when he was still there, could fly around spring training and see other ball clubs. And otherwise, he, they had to go by car. Well, Florida was a pretty big place to go try to visit a lot of the other National League teams. So they were thinking about buying a, a small plane. But um, a guy named Bud Holman, who was on the Dodger board, uh, board of directors, lived in Vero Beach, Florida, and and uh, had a Cadillac agency, and he's pretty well-to-do. And he was friendly with Eddie Rickenbacker, who was the uh, owner and uh, president of uh, Eastern Airlines. And they got in a crap game one night in um, uh, in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, Bud Holman got deep into the pocket of uh, Rickenbacker, and finally at 2 o'clock in the morning or something, uh, uh, Rickenbacker said, "I've had it. Uh, you're, you're into me big time, and 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 I've had it. You you wiped me out. So I got I don't have all that cash. I'm, I'm going to give you an IOU." 
And Bud Holman said, I don't want your money. I want an airplane. <laughs> so he ended up getting a DC-3 from Eddie Rickenbacker to pay a gambling debt. And that, and he did that because the board had been talking about acquiring a small plane for Mr. Ricky. So Bud Holman confirmed all this with Bud Holman's son, who became our pilot. His name was Bumps. His nickname was Bumps Holman. He confirmed all this, that this is exactly what happened, and this is how the Dodgers got their plane, uh, a little DC-3. And we used to fly around to our games in Florida. And then uh, uh, air, airline travel began to get more popular, then came the prop jet, the first early jets. So the Dodgers upgraded and began to fly a prop jet on the regular schedule. And then eventually, by the mid mid to late 50s, the, the full jet came into being and was accepted on the commercial airlines. And flying then became the major mode of travel. And the Dodgers owned their own plane in those days. And that's the only reason you could expand baseball to the West Coast was the jet plane. And that's one of the technology things that uh, happens in the real world that affected baseball. But as you know, and most baseball fans know, for 100 years, baseball was not farther west than St. Louis. And that wasn't because people didn't like it in the rest of the country, but until the jet plane came along, uh, there was no real possibility to have franchises even in Denver or Kansas City uh, onto the West Coast. And uh, But Mr. O'Malley was aware of all that. And so uh, it, it came together in several ways. But he wanted, he's a New Yorker. Mr. O'Malley's a New Yorker. And he, he was not interested in moving out of New York. Tried uh, desperately. ESPN did a piece a few years ago called The Ghosts of Flatbush. Have you seen that? I have, yes. Well, then you you got a very good documentary. It's still available, too. You can still buy the DVD. Uh, But uh, Mr. O'Malley uh, desperately tried to persuade the team to to stay there. Then, Then the most unusual thing happened. The owners, at the point where Mr. Molly was ready to decide we're going to make the move, they said you can't do it with one team. You cannot expect baseball to have one team on the West Coast and and make a schedule that would be acceptable. So before you can move, you've got to have two major league teams go to the West Coast. Well, the Giants were struggling at the polo grounds. It was an old ballpark, and the economy was not good. Tenants had been down. The Giants had had some good teams, but uh, they weren't making any money. So Walter O'Malley, smart man, he talks to Horace Stoneham, and they connected with San Francisco, although Dodgers get credit for being the first team to go west. Technically, if you look at the paperwork, the Giants actually went west first. But it was just a matter of how the how the negotiations were finally completed. But um, but anyway, now to have the city fathers of New York uh, so stubborn about this issue that they would allow two major league franchises to leave the city at the same time—that's unreal. 
you would think they'd be hanging the mayor of New York instead of wanting to hang O'Malley. <laughs> well, it was, I think that's what basically what ended up happening politically. <laughs> right. You know? Well, anyway, that's uh, strange to lose two franchises at the same time. It's just, so, just unreal. But that's that's the history of the whole picture. Carl, and that's how. Uh, we're coming up on about uh, a minute and a half uh, to go before the half hour, but if, if there's any uh, chance, uh, our listeners uh, won't be able to hear it live uh, after the half hour, but they can go listen to the archive. Can you stay for one more question? Yes, sir. Let's do it real quick. Okay. So my question for you is when, what was your first personal experience with Walter O'Malley uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, the, 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 player uh, perspective, uh, the player-owner relationship, what was what was your first uh, experience from a personal pr- perspective where you saw another side of Walter O'Malley? Well, I saw another side of Walter O'Malley in several ways. I can't, I can't do it this quick, but Walter O'Malley was a very sensitive man. Uh, the first thing was he married a lady uh, who was a charming lady, but who had a health problem in college, and she'd lost her voice. She couldn't speak. Uh, didn't deter him. He married Kay O'Malley. They had a wonderful family. Uh, Peter, his son, and Terry. Uh, incidentally, Peter has brought the history together from Brooklyn to uh, Los Angeles, uh, which was divided uh, under his dad, Walter, who wanted to establish the Dodgers in L.A. But Peter has brought the history of the Brooklyn Dodgers. But uh, Mr. O'Malley was a sensitive, generous man. Uh, a tough businessman, and uh, my respect for him. He gave me a lot of good advice about my years after baseball. So, Sam, maybe we can continue this sometime. Absolutely, and uh, I would uh, love to do that, and I appreciate you joining, and, and as always, uh, uh, I look forward to having you on again. And uh, I know you're uh, you're heading uh, down south, so uh, enjoy. Yeah, we're going to the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I'll be traveling. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we'll talk to you soon, Carl, and I appreciate okay. it. Okay. Thank you, Sam. Bye-bye. Absolutely. Have a good one, everybody, and we'll uh, we'll talk soon. Take care.